You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about crime and punishment. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links for all episodes can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. Raskolnikov felt sick, but he couldn't say why When he saw his face reflected in his victim's twinkling eye Some things you'll do for money, and some you'll do for fun But the things you do for love are gonna come back to you one by one No, we're not talking about the Dostoevsky novel today. We're talking about the criminal justice system. My name is Jim Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Brendan Curran Johnson, returning panelist from episode 42, I think. Whatever our Skepticon episodes were. Hello. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. We also have a new mic setup today, so hopefully we'll have addressed at least some of our sound quality issues from previous episodes. And if we haven't, you won't be hearing this, dear listener, because I will cut it out in post. So today we are talking about uh, criminal justice in general, and specifically we're going to talk about whether crime is getting worse lie detection and deception detection, profiling, and finally, getting rid of prisons? Prison abolition? Right. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today is violent crime. And the question before us is, is violent crime getting worse? I don't think this will be a hard question for us to answer collectively. I also have stats, so we don't just have to, you know, uh, spitball it the whole time. But what does the panel think? No. I think it's probably getting better. Yeah. Uh, for some crimes, better. Some crimes, worse. That's probably true. I think on the whole, probably better. I think we're just more aware and things are more sensationalized so that so we feel that it's getting worse. I think that probably, statistically, there are less violent crimes, just to be really, really pedantic. And I think that, linguistically, there are fewer violent crimes <laughs> to be really, really, really pedantic. <laughs> you know, we have lots of really mundane laws now, so if you could break one of those laws, it's not really violent. It's a less violent crime. You make a compelling argument. And one that I will kind of touch on later. So, oh, good. crime is certainly always on the news and on our minds. Uh, but we can actually observe decreasing trends in violent crime over time, both recent and across the centuries. Uh, in his book, Better Angels of Our Nature, Steven Pinker argues that over the last several hundred years, indeed thousand years, we've seen violence on the decline worldwide. Looking at recent trends, for which we have detailed reliable data, shows that in the last two decades we've seen a dramatic decrease in violent crime rates in North America. So things do not actually seem to be getting worse, uh, contrary to the, the kind of narrative that we see on 24-hour news cycles. Uh, we see things getting a lot better statistically. Not, I hasten to add, that that is in any way an excuse for the awful stuff that is happening in the world at any given time. So in the United States, a violent crime has decreased 
fifty percent since nineteen ninety three. So that's basically the last two decades. Homicides are down by fifty one percent, and robberies down by fifty six percent. In Canada, statistics from twenty thirteen, so also over that uh, two decade period. Uh, also show a 50% decrease in homicides. In fact, the police-reported crime rate across Canada in 2013 was at its lowest since 1969. So why have we seen this drop in crime? Uh, looking at these statistics, why has crime dropped so low? Do you have any guesses, anyone? Less lead in the air because of unleaded gasoline. <laughs> It's actually a good one. Yep, that <laughs> is a good one. I've seen that statistical graph thing. We're gonna, we're, and we're going to talk about huh. the lead hypothesis. Abortions. Abortion. Yes. <laughs> yes. Economics. Yeah. That's the Donahue Levitt hypothesis, as it's sometimes called, the abortion hypothesis. There is also the possibility that increased gun ownership has uh, decreased. <laughs> yeah, that's. It needs. That's it good. needs to be mentioned. <laughs> We'll touch on it briefly as an hypothesis. Uh, and there's also the what, what we call the sentencing hypothesis, which is basically that violent criminals have been getting harsher sentences, have been staying in prison longer, and so, so are off the streets. It's the tough-on-crime hypothesis. Uh, there, there are, of course, others that we'll touch on briefly, but these are some of the biggest broad categories that are posited to explain this big decrease in crime over the last few decades. I do want to ask you a quick question about that, Jim. Mm -hmm. um, the underreportage of crime. Are we talking about that as well? Because you were looking at violent crime, and we're definitely going to include rape in that category and how badly that rape is underreported. Rape is underreported. I don't have access to statistics, unfortunately, as to how the rate of reporting has changed over time, so I can't really speak to how that has changed. So uh, starting with the abortion hypothesis or the Donahue Levitt hypothesis, uh, the basic idea is that legalized abortion decreased the number of unwanted children or children whose parents cannot care for them who existed. And those sorts of children are more likely to become criminals than children whose parents are able to care for them adequately or children who live in happy homes where they feel wanted and like that. So uh, Stephen Levitt and John Donahue argue in their 2001 paper, The Impact of Legalized Abortion on Crime, that an inverse correlation is observed between the availability of abortion and subsequent crime. Uh, have you guys heard about this paper? Uh, Levitt is one of the Freakonomics guys. Yes, I haven't. I've heard about it. I've never read it, though. I feel like the first time that I heard about it was just a week or two ago, and I don't even think it was you linking to it, so that's kind of odd. You would have heard about it on Orange is the New Black. That is still on my to-watch list, that's especially since episodes of Rick and Morty have leaked. Well, now uh, it's going to be hard to watch it. It's been spoiled. You now know at one point they talk about abortion rates, and that's pretty much <laughs> giving it all away. Okay. It's in the first episode, Brandon. We're okay. I think maybe somebody linked to it because of that then, because I remember it being on Facebook. Anyway, so we've this, heard of it. <laughs> yeah. So, so this paper uh, has been criticized for making some statistical errors, and, and the authors actually conceded and later corrected these errors. But the data are sufficiently messy that there is quite an argument over whether the effect is real. So unfortunately for that one, I have to leave it in that kind of messy gray area where maybe there's an effect there, but it is really hard to determine what the magnitude of that effect is and whether uh, it is responsible for a large part of this drop in crime rates. 
Plausible but unconfirmed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll drop that Mythbusters plausible thing right in there. So how about the lead hypothesis? Ashlyn, so you, you brought that up. What do you know about the, the lead hypothesis? That there is a pretty strong correlation between the time when lead was taken out of uh, gasoline and sort of the drop-off of violent crime. But as we know, correlation does not equal causation, and I don't really know anything beyond that, whether there's been more study done. I existed with leaded gasoline, and I'm just fine. <laughs> uh, if I remember right, two things that went with it were one, lead-based paint that was used in poorer neighborhoods, as well as if you lived close to highways, you were more likely to have more lead in your system. Lead-based paint is tastier. <laughs> True, actually. <laughs> that's true. Sweet. So that's uh, yeah. confirmed on the Mythbusters scale? <laughs> yeah. So uh, j just to put it all together, the lead hypothesis contends that reduced crime is a result of lower levels of lead exposure in the environment, primarily due to the elimination of leaded gasoline. So beginning in the 1920s, tetraethyl lead, which is an octane booster, was added to gasoline to increase fuel economy and improve engine performance. Tetraethyl lead was phased out in North America in the 70s because of its damaging effect on catalytic converters and that whole being a dangerous neurotoxin thing. <laughs> uh, although uh, leaded gasoline wasn't actually banned in Canada until 1993 and the United States until 1996, which is kind of terrifying... <laughs> So, is leaded gasoline the culprit? Well, uh, Jessica Wolpau-Reyes of Amherst College contends that decreased lead exposure among children is responsible for up to a 56% decline in crime from 1992 to 2002. A statistically significant correlation has been found between the usage rate of leaded gasoline and violent crime, as we mentioned, and taking into account the 22-year time lag, the violent crime curve virtually tracks to the lead exposure curve. We do know that the ban on tetraethyl lead did lead to a dramatic decrease in blood lead levels in American children. So while we can't necessarily say for sure this was responsible for a drop in violent crime, it was responsible for a drop in lead levels in their blood, and uh, it did correlate heavily with a drop in crime. Now I'm going to ask, what about the lead-based makeup of the old Roman Empire and the Elizabethan Empire? Do we have crime levels on that? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But everybody looked fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> it is a trade-off. Uh, on to our third hypothesis, guns. It is often said by a certain segment of society, <laughs> that the only real defense against a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Uh, however, according to a 2013 study published in the American Journal of Medicine, gun ownership uh, is a strong, independent predictor of firearm-related death. According to one of the authors of this study, Sripal Bangalore, quote, private gun ownership was highest in the U.S. Japan, on the other hand, had an extremely low gun ownership rate. Similarly, South Africa and the U.S. had extremely high firearm-related deaths, whereas the United Kingdom had an extremely low rate of firearm-related deaths. There was a significant correlation between guns per head per country and the rate of firearm-related deaths, with Japan being on one end of the spectrum and the U.S. being on the other. This argues against the notion that more guns translate into less crime. South Africa was the only outlier in that the observed firearms-related death rate was several times higher than expected from gun ownership. 
So it's worth noting that even if increased gun ownership did decrease the rate of violent crime, it also greatly increases the rate of gun-related accidental deaths. A 2004 study in the American Journal of Epidemiology found that people with guns in their homes were almost twice as likely to be killed in their own home as compared to people who did not have guns in their home. According to the authors, quote, regardless of storage practice, type of gun, or number of firearms in the home, having a gun in the home was associated with an increased risk of firearm homicide and firearm suicide in the home. Even if it is stored properly and secured properly, you are still at a, an increased risk of being killed by a gun if you have a gun. Not at all surprising. <laughs> yeah. Especially with kids in the house, if you don't store them properly, um, which I know you said, you know, it's not. But if you have guns that are allowed to be in the home and you have children who are allowed to be in homes, they're going to come into contact some of the time. It is yeah. heartbreaking every time you read one of those news stories, and there are lots of them. How do we explain Switzerland, then, with the mandatory gun ownership by those who were part of the mandatory service in the army? Uh, they don't keep ammo at home. Right. I had forgotten about that point. Thank <laughs> That's you. That's a great idea. Yes. Ammo keep has all to... the guns you want. Yeah. Can't shoot a thing. <laughs> Brendan read the same article that I did. Just recently. <laughs> that Yeah, like Ashton said, that's not surprising. It's really, when it's there too, it becomes the thing that you kind of go to as well. So, you know, whatever is easy access in any area of life, that's what we go to. So I, I don't, I can't back this up by a study that I've read or anything, but in general, you know, if you've got cookies on the table, you're going to eat the cookies because they're right there. <laughs> I have cookies on the table right now. But I'm, you know, if I don't have cookies on the table, it's then harder for me to go get cookies, right? So it's the same sort of idea. If you have easier access to something, it becomes more of a go-to in your life. Now, there's something that occurs to me as well, and this is just uh, me sort of uh, engaging in metacognition here, so uh, take it with a grain of salt, but I can see myself, if I owned a gun or had a gun at hand, if you know, there were, if I were held up, if somebody mugged me or whatever, I might be much more likely to try to defend myself rather than handing over the cash if I had a gun. Now, I am not competent in the use of a firearm, and getting into a standoff with somebody who also has a gun is not a great thing for your health, regardless of your competency. So... I'm kind of glad that that's not an option for me. I mean, maybe there are situations where the, the person doesn't want your money or your life. They just want your life, I guess. But in the situations where they want your money or your life, I'm glad that I have the option of just handing over the money and am not, Standing your ground. Am not tempted to stand my ground. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the final possible answer that we're going to discuss in detail with regard to the reduction in crime is sentencing. So some have argued, uh, especially those involved in the criminal justice system in the United States, that the recent decrease in violent crime is a result of harsher sentencing in North America, uh, especially in the U.S., which has kept hardened criminals off the streets. And while there are some studies that back this up to a limited degree, it definitely isn't the whole story. I do want to note that it is unlikely that any one factor is wholly responsible for the decrease in crime. We don't want to fall prey to the single cause fallacy. So by that, you're saying probably 50% America has lots of guns, so things are great. 50% because we're putting people in jail longer. Um, do you want to commit to that? 
<laughs> well, uh, I actually uh, did look into, uh, according to a Government of Canada report that I will link to in the show notes, quote, multivariate analysis performed by the Canadian Centre for Justice Statistics indicated that changes in inflation tend to have the most association with charges in crime that is financially motivated, so robbery, for example, break and enter, motor vehicle theft while changes in alcohol consumption and employment rates are correlated most with changes in the homicide rate, and changes in the population's age and gender are associated with changes in the rate of break and enters, end quote. So the report goes on to note, actually, that changes to the criminal code affect crime rates by expanding definitions of crime or by criminalizing behaviors that were not previously considered a crime or by decriminalizing others. So incarcerating people for longer or being harsher on them does nothing. Uh, there, There is limited evidence. The evidence is not of exceptionally high quality. We'll link to some of the summaries in the show notes. I did not find it exceptionally convincing, but I would be remiss not to mention it. There isn't no evidence. It's just enough for Vic Taves. <laughs> right. uh... And uh, the, He's gone. One, He's gone. one of the Thank problems you. is tough on crime means different things to different people. And to a lot of people, it is closely related to a punitive system of justice, which I find personally intolerable. Uh, we, we will discuss uh, during Brendan's segment. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the way that prison actually functions, at least sometimes. But before we do that, let's talk about why there are so many people in prison. So we know that crime is on the wane. But prison populations are booming. That seems weird. Uh, Canada's incarceration rate is roughly 120 prisoners per 100,000 people, which is, uh, it's, it's okay, it's not great uh, when you compare it to other countries, but it is less than a fifth that of the United States. So Canada has 120 prisoners per 100,000. The United States has about 700 prisoners per 100,000. So if crime is decreasing, why do we have so many people in prison? Drugs. 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 Also, we're better than them. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but Canada's prison population is also on the increase. Any yeah. guesses? I'm going to stick with drugs. Drugs? Okay. Uh, longer. Harper. Yeah. Harper. 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 I think the main problem in the U.S. is Harper, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's longer sentences mostly, but also a bit of just more aggressively going after certain crimes. Yeah. Uh, so if we look at our neighbors to the south, uh, we can see that the size of American prison population uh, has a lot more to do with the length of the average prison sentence than it does with the number of people who are actually sent to prison. Can I interject for a second? When things like um, parole breaches and things like that, does that count in the longer prison sentence or is that different? Because a lot of people, from what I understand, they, they're sent to prison, say two years or something medium security they breach their parole at some point and they get they just keep coming back and does is that part of the longer sentence or is that a different category because that that if would it's be a different a separate category crime. is it yes okay yeah. i wasn't sure how that all factored in yeah like so. uh, longer sentences mostly has to do with tough on crime and war yeah. and the war on drugs in both cases there's been pushes for mandatory minimums right. or three strike laws yeah. that are forcing uh life without parole and mandatory minimums uh, basically are just designed to remove the... Well, they're, they're designed to win elections, I guess. <laughs> but they're designed to remove any potential for the, uh, for the sentencing judge to exercise discretion or take into account circumstances, basically. Well, I think it's important that politicians that are trying to win elections 
probably know more about the specific case than a judge ruling on it. So I think it's important <laughs> that we keep mandatory minimum sentences right. <laughs> and was oh so happy when Canada a few years ago harshly increased their mandatory minimums for several nonviolent drug crimes. But what about stealing a loaf of bread? Well, things sort of turned out well for Jean Valjean. <laughs> so looking at statistics for the United States, uh, we see that the American prison population is growing primarily as a result of increasing lengths of the average prison sentence. Because prisoners are incarcerated for longer, you end up with a much larger proportion of the population in prison at any given time. Uh, and if you give them no chance for parole, the population can only grow. I mean, except for the people who who die in jail, but as the population of the country grows, the population in the prison will continue to grow. Uh, according to a report filed by the research branch of the Correctional Service of Canada, we, that is Canada, are also affected by this trend, and 2013 saw Canada's prison population hit an all-time high. Oh, good. So that is the end of my uh, little dive into, is crime getting worse? No. Then why are more people in prison? Because uh, reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly bad ones. <laughs> Uh, so why don't we move on to talking about deception detection? Uh, Lauren, you wanna you wanna tell us about how polygraphs are awesome and uh, all of that fun stuff? Of course. So how is lie deception detection done? Well, that depends. Who's asking? Trying to detect and see through lies has been a part of human communication ever since we invented lying. So some historical measures are more well known than others, including torture, because that was always there for lie detection. My personal favorite is the mum stare. <laughs> That's just the... Nobody can see it on the podcast, but it's the... I don't know. When I listen to the podcast later, I'm going to know what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should be careful about generalizing. Yep. And there's that look again. <laughs> it worked really well for me when I was a bouncer in a bar, because I would just have to give people the mum stare and say, I know you're 18 because I checked your ID when I let you in here. Let's start acting like it. <laughs> so... We, we do have a modern science of lie detection, and it began with the turn of the 20th century, because that's when everything modern started. <laughs> <laughs> so it began with Benussi's studies of physiological changes. He detected changes in inspiration-expiration ratio, and his findings were confirmed by N.E. Burt. None of these people had links to their names, so I couldn't even tell you a little bit of their bios. But Burt went <laughs> on to study the changes in quantitative systolic blood pressure. Apparently he was a really big deal. So William Moulton Marston studied blood pressure and noted increase in systolic blood pressure of a certain amount or over <laughs> indicated guilt through using the Tycho's sphygmometer, <laughs> which he reported 90 to 100 percent accuracy of telling when somebody was lying. Seems legit. Uh, so yeah. did anyone try it on him after he said that? Or... <laughs> so have you ever seen one of these things? One of the ones that they used at the start of the 20th century? No. They are frightening. There's like this giant wooden cuff that you put over your arm. I would tell the truth if hooked up to this thing. It looks like it's going to inject you with... Now, would you tell the truth or would you say absolutely anything to get that off your arm? Whatever you think they would like you to say. I would, I would cry like a little baby. That's what I do. So during the 20th century, the polygraph was a major tool for lie detection. And that's what sort of grew from this other machine. So and has anyone here been hooked up to a lie detector or a polygraph machine? I have not because I did not do a co-op term with the Canadian government. Nor did I. <laughs> Many of my co-workers. <laughs> Excellent. So they measure several physiological indices, such as blood pressure, 
pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity, while the subject is asked and answers a series of questions. I have been hooked up to a skin conductivity meter because I took the Scientology auditing thing. Oh, the (laughs) e-meter. Yeah. Because let's take one part of something that doesn't work and make sure that it works. But it's only for (laughs) religious purposes. Right. Yeah. Only to be used by a religious professional. Don't get me started on Scientology. <laughs> oh, when when they were talking about how try to help people and make sure that, you know, they're doing okay, like psychologically, I was like, oh, like psychiatrists. <laughs> the look on their face was amazing. Wow. Jam, you and I need to do a show about Scientology. I've got... That'd be good. Years of it. Have we done a Scientology show? No. Nope. I've always... How I've... have we not done a Scientology show? Because everybody else done... is. Because I feel like we've talked about it before, so... Yeah. So okay. skin conductivity, sorry to... Yeah, that's okay. Back to the polygraph now. Tests are conducted using control questions to gauge both truthfulness and untruthfulness in answers, as well as questions pertinent to the investigations. The efficacy of polygraph tests is unknown. But we're looking at not 90 to 100 percent. We're looking at probably a coin toss or looking at somebody and guessing is probably (laughs) about the same as you're going to get with the polygraph. Proponents do swear it's 90 percent effective, but the results are not allowed in courts in Canada or in the U.S. Yeah. Or mostly around the world. But they are so, so allowed in the court of Maury. Oh my, yeah, that's my next, that, that is my next point. Well, they're also used for high clearance for government employees and like that. You know, That's illegal in Ontario. The federal government still uses yep, it, though. But it is illegal in the province of Ontario to use them for employment. How forward-thinking. <laughs> and by forward-thinking, I mean it's literally the policy for everyone else yeah. <laughs> uh, it, which is terrifying because as you said like they you know they, their hit rate isn't great they work okay but they can first of all they can be deliberately fooled you know by doing things like flexing your anus stepping on attack is <laughs> stepping on attack like during you basically screw up your measurements during the controls mm. and then they get garbage So I will mention one difference is the place where the Canadian government does use it is for, I don't remember what level three or level four clearance is called, it's only for whatever is above top secret clearance. And the issue is, unlike normal jobs, if they get rid of a number of perfectly fine applicants, it doesn't matter because it's more important that they don't get people who are treasonous. Right. So so they don't care about false positives for lying. They care more about false negatives. Also, an 80% hit rate, let's say it's 80% or even 90%, an 80% or 90% hit rate is worthless in a lot of cases when your prior probability of something being false is higher. We're talking about Bayesian statistics here, not frequentist statistics. I know Ashlyn's giving me that look, so I'll give you an example. Um, Ashlyn, do you own a pet dragon? Yes. Well, my lie detector, which is super duper 95% accurate says that you're telling the truth and you do, in fact, own a pet dragon. Sweet. (laughs) So, since my lie detector is very accurate, you do own a pet dragon because it said you were telling the truth and it was 95% accurate, right? So obviously there is a 95% chance that you own a dragon, right? Correct. So that's frequentist statistics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that ignores the prior plausibility of owning a dragon, which is pretty close to zero. (laughs) The dragon example is obviously silly, uh, but you get the point. It's basically in cases where the prior probability of something being true or false isn't just 50-50, which it is basically never going to be when you're trying to detect lies, (laughs) the answers are far less useful. I just checked. Ashlyn has 42 pet dragons on the online game Flight Rising. Well, I guess in this case... (laughs) 
and therefore every case. <laughs> a polygraph is perfect. Um, Yay, dragon! One of the one of the things that also increases the use of these polygraphs, I think, is the uh, confirmation bias. You know, it worked for me. It worked for me. I know because I was screened, and they hired me, and I know that I wasn't lying. Therefore, it works, which is uh, what's what's known as survivorship bias. And it's scary. Yeah. So, besides polygraph, another well-known side of the lie detection coin. Is it a die or a dodecahedron? There are a large number, but we're only going to talk about a few. It's the study of microexpressions, as pioneered by Paul Ekman. Through a series of studies, Ekman found a high agreement across members of diverse Western and Eastern literate cultures on selecting emotional label labels that fit facial expressions. Expressions he found to be universal included those indicating anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. Findings on contempt were less clear, though there was at least some pre preliminary evidence that this emotion and its expressions are universally recognized. So scoffing is good in every language. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> that I will be well understood. Yeah. My sarcasm font works. <laughs> Ekman's famous test of emotion recognition was the Pictures of Facial Effect, POFA, stimulus set published in 1976 consisting of 110 black and white images of Caucasian actors portraying the six universal emotions plus neutral expressions. The POFA has been used to study emotional recognition rates in normal and psychiatric populations around the world. So Ekman used these stimuli in his original cross-cultural research. And many researchers now favor the POFA because these photographs have been rated by large normative groups in different cultures. There were criticisms, however, especially how the images all showed Caucasian faces. So in response to critics, uh, Ekman eventually released a more culturally diverse set of stimuli called the Japanese and Caucasian Facial Expressions and Emotions. <laughs> so he just added some Japanese people. Uh, did he at least add, like, positive and negative for yeah. Japanese people? Okay. Yeah, the same, the same sort of emotions. Every face in the set goes through the entire range of emotions, oh, okay. plus a neutral. So it wasn't just an implicit association test. <laughs> White People Smiling yeah. by Ekman. <laughs> so by 1978, Ekman and Wallace Friesen had finalized and developed the Facial Action Coding System, FACS, to taxonomize every human facial expression. I don't know how they did that. Every. Everyone. Every. But apparently it only took two years. <laughs> so... FACS is an anatomically based system for describing all observable facial movement for every emotion. They're basically categorizing like muscle configurations, essentially, yeah. right? So and you know it's for real because facts. <laughs> I don't know. Well done. How did they not go with face? They couldn't think of a thing that started. They're talking about emotions. That's your E. You mean yeah. when it came to an, an update of this tool in the early 2000s when it was renamed the FACE, Facial Expression, Awareness, Compassion, and Emotions, and redeveloped as a tool to learn about identifying and recognizing facial expressions in the human face. Well, now it sounds way more believable. I'm on board. <laughs> so... Other tools have been developed, including the Microexpressions Training Tool, METT, because we all love our initialisms, which can help individuals identify more subtle emotional expressions that occur when people try to suppress their emotions. So this is the microexpressions, the I'm trying to be stoic, but I can't help oh, that, that my eyes will... flash you with an actual tiny. expression. Yeah. So the TV show Lie to Me was based on the works of Paul Ekman. The excellent, excellent 
criminally underrated Tim Roth vehicle lie to me. It was awful. It was great. It was but it great. Was, oh, it was it was a it was a fun show. Yeah. Like if you just don't put, if you don't put much stock in it, it's a fun show. Well, well how would you put thing? much stock in it? Because it was terrible. But it was, <laughs> but it was based on the science of Paul Heckman. Uh, yeah, that's the thing that made it terrible. Yeah, because every every t- every week they had to solve these crimes with these teeny tiny micro expressions and sexy results. I like the fact that they talked about how awful the polygraph was, but only as a vehicle to tell you how great micro expressions were. So, yeah. can I beat micro expressions by just making a lot of macro expressions? <laughs> no, because your little facial expressions will will identify. So, if you just kind of walk around like doing this all the time if i just have like my heart on my sleeve i figure maybe i can beat it no you have to give the mom look the entire time you're walking around i'm not really ready to be a mom yet i'm going to admit it's okay you can do the mom look i'm not a mom either so speaking of lie detection in the media i recently listened to an episode of the criminal podcast called pants on fire it's their second episode and it is about you guessed it lie detection the study by Andy Morgan of Yale detailed how subjects describing the last concert they de- subjects described the last concert they went to, and they were answering questions about how it smelled, how it felt to walk backwards through the whole night, and they were answering specific questions about about the evening, and some of the the study participants were purposely lying. The examiner ran the stories through a word counter, a word counting software. Mm, and the ones yeah, that were telling yeah, yeah. the truth used more unique words than the ones who were lying. So when you create a lie, you basically write yourself a small script and you don't deviate from it. Mm-hmm. So if you're telling it saying, well, what did you smell? And then you try and work the same script. So you can't create new emotions based off of this script that you had. So as our understanding of the human body and brain gets more refined, lie detection becomes much more possible. In a study published December 7, 2013, the International Journal of Electrical, Electronics, and Computer Engineering found that voice stress analysis technology can identify emotional stress better than a polygraph. Well, anything's better than a polygraph, yeah. really. <laughs> so EEG tests are also being used, and tests involving eye tracking. Basically, your body will give you away. We probably need very fine machines and technology to test it. So I'm waiting for the Voigt-Camp test myself. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? All right, so basically, you're in the desert, and you come across a turtle, and it's been flipped upside down. How do you feel? Sad? You're human. Oh, okay, that's the test? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That is what I remember of a book I read, like, half a decade ago. I have the audiobook of it with me right here. So if everyone can hold on a moment. (laughs) I just want to uh, mention before we transition on to Laura's topic that Paul Ekman's work has been thoroughly criticized, although I don't think discredited is necessarily fair, uh, because uh, it has been unreproducible. And the recent studies that he has conducted related to lie detection were not peer-reviewed, and in fact, he won't release the data for security reasons. Because sexy results with Tim Roth. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but I think the idea is he doesn't want this technology to get into, like, enemy hands. His techniques are used by, like, the TSA, for example. And actually, investigations of the TSA program based on his work concluded that it's about as accurate as flipping a coin. Yeah. I want everyone to know, even though what was said previously was cut, I totally know everything that happens in Ghostbusters, because that's something to be proud of. (laughs) Laura, why don't you tell us about profiling? All right. 
There's a couple types of profiling that we can talk about in terms of the justice system. Um, the first kind is often called criminal profiling or offender profiling. And the idea behind this is learning about the perpetrator of a crime by their actions before, during, and after a crime was committed. So um, this is the type of thing that happens on a lot of TV shows like CSI and Criminal Minds and Law and & Order to some extent, and a lot of those TV cop and law shows. So what happens here is that the crime scene is studied to find, obviously, clues and, and evidence, but it's studied to see if there are some characteristics, things like the um, the signature of a of a particular offender. And this is particularly something that's looked for in if we're trying to link several crimes together, um, going on the notion that a perpetrator would do the same sort of things at each crime scene. Crime scenes are also profiled for their geographical location and proximity um, going under the uh, assumption that a perpetrator, especially of multiple crimes, would have a, a base of operations sort of somewhere in the center and their their crimes would be nearby. So it may help them find physically or, or geographically find the person. And it also involves um, some investigative psychology and somewhat clinical approaches where they're looking at what might be the psyche or the mental health of the person that they're looking for and trying to figure out what type of person they might be, what type of behavior, personality, and um, and things like that. So that's what we're talking about when it comes to criminal profiling. And the area that a lot of us are, are uh, most familiar with, particularly from TV, is the uh, prospective profiling part of this, right. where they take this information and then they try and they come up with a hypothetical person and then they look for people who match that description. So based on the evidence that they have and the psychological aspects and that, they say, okay, we're looking for probably a woman, let's say, or probably in her 40s, lower socioeconomic status, uh, probably from this area of the city, maybe was part of the military. And it's always a loner. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of similar things, but the idea is that they come up with this profile of this person and then they s look for suspects that can sort of match that profile. And this is a very common technique used by a lot of law enforcement agencies at all levels of government. So there are some problems with this. <laughs> so the biggest problem with this um, is the problem of false positives and false negatives that we talked about a little bit already. With this perspective profiling, because you're making up a person, basically, you're looking to have the best match with kind of what's out there. There have been several cases of false positives where people match the description, but are not at all related to the crime, but they happen to be a woman in her 40s of lower socioeconomic status who was in the military at some point. I've literally never heard of a like an offender profile on a TV show that is of a woman. <laughs> I don't yeah, think. I was gonna ask. I did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've watched a lot of Criminal Minds. There's a few. They throw in like one a season. Yeah, I did that to be a little different. No, anyway. I appreciate that. I was just... So the point is, it has happened time and time again that uh, people are 
falsely accused of these types of, of, of crimes and such because they fit the profile, but they're not actually related to the crime. I want to jump back for a second to this type of profiling is mostly used when there isn't any DNA evidence. So nowadays with our technologies getting better and knowing the importance of DNA and trying to collect it in that, we're hopefully using this a little bit less, but the situations where the profiling is used is when there is little to no DNA evidence. And so like I said, they're trying to kind of create a person. There's also the problem of the false negatives here where um, the profilers will come up with a profile that doesn't at all match the actual offender. So it sends um, investigators and law enforcement down the entirely wrong path, um, which then would have uh, innocent people being suspected and such. And then you have the guilty parties that are not, or the, the offenders that are not um, being found. So that's one of the biggest problems there. Um, another problem that's identified is that the, a lot of the people who are criminal profilers don't actually have a background in psychology. So a big part of this, of the profiling, is thinking about looking at the crime scene, looking at everything the way it was and thinking, why would the person have done this? And it's assuming that this person is a rational agent and this person has a motive and thinking, okay, why would they have done this? What else was going on in their lives? What type of personality would you have to have to do this in this way? And so these, these are heavily psychological traits and a lot of these profilers don't have any background in psychology. So that seems like a situation that is ripe for just hyperactive pattern matching and constructing a narrative where one doesn't necessarily exist. Absolutely. And I'm going to get to that. However, there is another issue that has been brought up and has been tested um, several times that's found that when they match trained criminal profilers and lay people and university professors and sometimes even psychologists together, give them scenarios and have them come up with profiles, none of them are significantly better than anyone else in this group. So even people who do this as a living, these they're su uh, supposedly trained, they don't have a better success rate than people who've never done this before. Human lie detectors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if I put on my resume that I'm an expert at this, literally no one can call me out on it? <laughs> well, you mentioned as a problem that these people don't have psychological training, but apparently that doesn't help either, exactly. so... <laughs> <laughs> and there have actually been some cases where they've had people who have psychological training but not criminal training that have also led the investigation down the wrong path with a right. false positive or negative. But what about a psychic? Ah, oh, well, you know. This crime was clearly done by an Aries. <laughs> Psychics don't talk about that. That's like palm readers and stuff. Well, yeah, astrologers, but... Okay, uh, are you telling me they never bring astrologers psychics? in to work out who did the crime? <laughs> Only the first George Bush and Ronald Reagan. So even when you have people that are supposedly trained in this, doesn't turn out any better. There's no better hit rate here. And another issue brought up is that the assumptions and presumptions around this type of profiling are called into question in that we're looking at a very small uh, chunk of time that's a very uh, rare occurrence for most people and in, in most day-to-day -day life. But we're judging a person, we're building a personality and expectations and desires and all of these types of things based off of a very, very small chunk of time. And more research is showing that this is not a reliable way to to make assumptions about people. So, so another way of saying this is that, you know, when you go to the grocery store, sometimes you see 
interesting things in people's carts, right? And so you might be at a grocery store and you see someone who has a cart just loaded with nothing but chips and Oreos, nothing but it. And you go, oh my gosh, that is the least healthy person I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe they eat that way, right? Like, Brandon, what are you doing in my supermarket? (laughs) Why is everyone looking at me? (laughs) I just order food in so no one can see. (laughs) We may or may not all have had these kinds of assumptions. I love playing that game. (laughs) It's one of my favorite games. Sometimes I ask because I'm a terrible person. So... Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, someone was loading up like literally 50 bags of chips and that's all they bought. And so I was curious. I said, are you having a party? And she said, no, I'm sending them up north because it's cheaper for me to ship them than for them to buy them up there. Interesting story. I guess they're light. Yeah. So sometimes I find out interesting things. Yeah. So, but this is, this is the thing, right? We make that snap assumption. And so we've all of a sudden constructed that this person eats nothing but chips and, and all every week buys a cart full of them or something like that. But we really don't know. This may have been a party. They may have been sending it to somebody. They may have been donating it somewhere. We have no idea. They may never have bought this amount of chips before in their life. When uh, one of the guys we work with, when he first started working uh, at my company, I thought that all he ate was burgers because every time I saw him eating, he was eating a burger. But it just so happened that uh, he only worked a very small number of days a week. And those were the days when he would eat out and the closest place was a burger place. And so that's what he got on those specific days. But because I had a very non-representative time snapshot that I would see him in, I would hastily generalize (laughs) Is it sort of the same situation as when when I make a mistake, I know that there was circumstance that caused that, whereas when I see someone else made a mistake, I think that it's because of fault in them? That's a fundamental attribution error. Thank you. I think that that definitely goes along with it. You know, that's that's part of our reasoning, right? When I go and buy a cart full of chips, well, because I need it for this or because I need it for that, or I, I'm allowed to have chips this day and don't judge me for it, right? But when they do it, oh, no, you're a bad person. You, I can't believe you would ever do that. Uh, yeah, I think that goes hand in hand there. So you're, you're saying that these profilers are trying to build like a psychological profile of this person, but they're basing it on a very non-representative snapshot because very few people have as part of their daily life just murdering folks. <laughs> right, or some other crime. Or whatever, or whatever the crime is. Be, but often it's used in murders and particularly like serial murders. Yeah. So these are things that almost by definition, are not part of the standard makeup of anyone's behavior. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's often... Speak for yourself, Jim. (laughs) Yeah. On a group level, if we're using the this type of perspective profiling, it can further biases that we already have and stereotypes that are already had. So if we start trying to apply it to groups... Things like, oh, well, people of certain ethnic groups are more likely to commit this type of crime or or crime at all, or people of certain socioeconomic statuses are more likely to be imprisoned or or whatever. I mean, that's true. But, (laughs) you know, for a certain crime, for example, or or whatever it happens to be, it tends to strengthen those type of of biases that we already have. Can we call those the Trump biases now? Sure. Yeah, but no one's going to understand what that means in like a year, hopefully, right? <laughs> oh, God, we can only uh, That's what we thought four years ago. <laughs> All right. So that's criminal profiling. The other type of profiling that we... Facebook? <laughs> that a lot of us encounter if we travel is... Super bigoted racist Profiling? <laughs> yeah, it, oh, sorry. Yeah, thank you. It's like racial like a racial, or... ethnic, religious type of profiling that we go through. And one of the best examples that 
people come up with is when we're traveling and we're going through security screenings. Um, so racial profiling. And this is something that is in the media a lot and we know is being done in many different ways. And so the, the people who are for this will say, well, we know that or we believe that the highest risk of certain crimes or, or uh, problems that we're going to have are likely to come from people from a certain ethnic background. For instance, since 2002, most terrorist attacks in the U.S. that have caused people to die have been white males. Right. Yep. Right. Because that's a demographic that you hear demonized in the in the news all the time. Um, in my Twitter feed, but that's because I carefully curate my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we believe that this group is the highest risk for us for this type of attack. Therefore, we should single these people out in some way. Because it's common sense, right? If you know what your problem is, then deal with the problem and leave all the other people alone because they're not likely to be a problem. So by single them out, you mean like extra screening measures, right. closer inspections, right? So one stopping of... them and frisking them. Yeah, exactly. So basically doing more than the quick once over that you would do in any other situation. Stop anything that might be a little bit questionable gets a second question, whereas in somebody who's you believe is low risk, it doesn't warrant a second question. So, they don't get the benefit of the doubt. Right, exactly. So the thought is here that it's just a minor inconvenience for the people that you are asking the second question to, and you're saving a lot of time and energy because you're now not asking a lot of questions that you would be asking. And why would you be randomly asking somebody who's obviously couldn't be part of this group? You know, why would you spend your time doing that when you could be targeting these people who are more likely to be part of this group? So what do, let's say, actual security experts have to say about that idea? <laughs> Do you have anything, let's say, Bruce Schneier, noted security expert, has to say about I this do, particular idea? So I do. So as happens a lot of times in life, common sense isn't exactly what we want to go with here. Because when we do the analysis, when we look at the evidence, that type of approach doesn't actually make us any safer and can actually make us less safe in a lot of ways. So what happens here is when we do that profiling, there's... There's a lot of problems that come into it. One of the biggest problems is that to have a definable group that could be fairly easily recognized by the people doing the screening, it would have to be so broad to include all of the known instances of that group that you couldn't realistically exclude anybody from that group, right? So in this article that I was reading, this really wonderful article, they were talking about Muslims and trying to identify people who are Muslim or who could reasonably be Muslim. And there are so many people who fall into that category. First of all, it's all genders, right? So it's men and women and anybody in between that identifies as Muslim. Um, and it's people from hundreds of countries. So with all sorts of different skin tones and hair colors and eye colors and facial characteristics and like that. There's different styles of dress as well. Some people wear like Western type clothing. Some people wear clothing from the country that they're from. Some people are from one country and wear clothing from another country. There's so many different characteristics 
there. Um, and then there's not a lot of really obvious um, examples of their religious belief in a lot of cases. You know, you can look at two people standing side by side dressed in the same outfit with the same haircut and even the same skin color and you don't know what their background is. And we have documented cases of a lot of people falling everywhere in the spectrum. So to include all of these people would include everybody. That is the biggest problem with this. So it's not narrowing it down at all. The next problem is that if we're to look at a system where we are doing extra screening on only targeted people, this actually makes the system more complex. And when security systems, but with a lot of systems, as they get more complex, you have more chances for error, right? And of course, these are systems that are based on human interactions, human judgments in a lot of cases. So there's lots and lots of chances for error here. Because what one person might judge, you know, I'm going to go back to this example, but somebody who looks Muslim, another person may not judge that. Yeah, and if your system relies on judgment calls being made by individual people like on the ground, that's going to be very inconsistent. Absolutely. Most often aren't trained. Exactly. Right. In the system that- Well, they're trained have, by Paul Ekman. <laughs> well, and Schneier uh, points this out too. In the system that exists at present, the people don't make judgment calls. The people, the TSA agents don't make judgment calls. They follow procedure because that's the only way to apply things um, in a standardized way, right? Because these are people who are not highly trained, who are not- in a position to be making those type of judgment calls. And so if we were to implement a system that required judgment calls, it's going to be very expensive in cost because we now have to pay these people a heck of a lot more for the responsibility that you they have. You mean a living wage? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. And it's going to be very much more costly in time because every judgment that you have to make takes more time than following the procedure does. So if you think your airport lineups are long right now, just wait until you're making they're making the judgment calls. So that's important to know. Another important point is that, again, in the system that exists in much of North America, the person who looks at you and the person who looks at your bag and the person who waves you through the metal detector are three different people. And if you go through the body scanner, that's a fourth person. So if one person notices an anomaly and needs to make a judgment, they need to then communicate that to another person. And then they need to make a judgment call and it goes down the chain. And there are so many opportunities for error. Um, so it becomes a very, very expensive, costly, time-consuming system there. So we're not actually saving any time for anybody. And we're probably spending more money. So we're not being any more efficient than we were. Another big problem with having a profile in general and applying it consistently to a certain group of people is that then that group of people learns what your profile is. Yeah. So if you're, you know, trying to avoid um, neo-Nazi terrorists, you're saying, okay, anybody who's white as white can be, shaved head, maybe he's got a squastica somewhere, lots of ripped jeans and leather, like, you know, if you put that out there, guess what? They're going to say, oh, they're looking for me. So I'm going to grow my hair. I'm going to change my clothes. I'm going to get a tan. Like, and this is done. We know, and we have documented examples of groups learning what their profile is and working actively to change it so that they are no longer profiled and they can squeeze through the system there. Sorry, it looked like you were going to say something. I was going to make a joke about them turning the swastika tattoo into like a window or something. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> So basically what you're saying is for something like profiling to work, it, we'd have to assume that the group was too dumb to know that that thing was being looked for? Yeah. 
yeah, we'd have to assume that they don't get any kind of outside information. And as much as, you know, the the authorities and law enforcement, you know, do uh, covert operations on them, it's they would never do covert operations on on the people who are trying to to catch them. Right. That would never happen. I believe Scorsese's The Departed is all about how one sided investigations are and how criminals never would do something the same way the other way. So there's there's a lot of problems with the racial profiling that happens there. There's um, and the biggest uh, strike against it is that when the analysis is done, it just doesn't make us any safer. So following that type of scheme is not worth it. And it is uh, racist. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest problem that I have with it. I mean, like there there are two separate questions, whether it works. Uh, so that's one question. Does it work? And the other is. If it works, do we want to live in a society that does it? Uh, you know, is that worth it? Right. And uh, to that second question, I'd answer probably not, especially given the fact that terrorist threats are not major threats that we actually have to deal with. <laughs> They're exceptionally rare, and planning as if they are very commonplace is a foolhardy thing. Yes. Well put. Yeah. So if you... Use a procedure like randomized screening instead of profiling, then you're in a situation where nobody can really game it. Unless, like that program that those psychics are doing, they can change the outcome of random number generators. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's this a super whole dumb thing program. Was waiting for that joke? That wasn't a joke. That just occurred to me. Yeah. No, so. Yes, that, that is really what the security experts come down to. There are some other solutions, but then it also does come down to how much time and money and effort are we willing to spend on it. But the least amount of time, money, and effort, randomized screening, because if you don't know, then you, you can't plan for it. You can't do everything you can to, to stay outside of that, that group. So we have one more uh, major topic that we want to talk about. Uh, Brendan, you want to tell us about the uh, prison abolition movement? Oh no, I've made fun of everyone else talking. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> Alright, so I'm going to be talking a bit about prison abolition. And so the goal of prison abolition, unsurprisingly, abolish prisons, but in doing so to also end the prison industrial complex. So uh, what this actually entails is several things. Um, it means doing things before... People are actually in jail, for instance, anti-poverty programs so that people aren't forced to commit crimes. It, it means access to health care, including psychiatric care and addictions programs. It means decriminalizing people. Right now we have lots of laws like vagrancy laws that attack poor people. We have anti-LGBT laws, although we're working on getting rid of them. Uh, we have the war on drugs, which is really, really racist. And another thing would be just alternatives to prisons for crimes. I know that it seems elementary, but can you just expand on the really, really racist war on drugs thing? Okay, so the war on drugs predominantly uh, targets people of color, especially black people in the U.S. Um, most everything I say, assume I mean the U.S. unless I say otherwise. Uh, there are arguments, and when I say there are arguments, I mean you really, really should read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, but the issue is that it predominantly targets people of color, and the issue is that... Arguably, it is specifically designed to target these people. You also get uh, racially specific laws. For instance, crack cocaine is treated as a much 
uh, worse crime than powder cocaine, and crack cocaine happens to be a drug that black people are more likely to use, and powder cocaine is a drug that rich white people are more likely to use. So I'm, I don't have a ton to say about this. It's, yep. it's pretty cut and dry. All right, uh, so this also means improving the treatment of prisoners who are in prison. This means access to health care. This means dealing with problems like prison rape. Uh, This means there's lots of LGBT issues. For instance, people in prison in California, and I believe all the U.S., uh, it's decided which jail they will go to solely on what genitals they have, and that is obviously discriminatory, and it causes very obvious horrible problems. And it also means things like dealing with solitary confinement, which is torture that's been agreed upon. And it also means dealing with things like voting. Rights And getting back to the war on drugs, uh, the war on drugs has uh, criminalized people of color much more than it has white people. And if we also have a system where people who have been convicted of a crime can't vote, that means we are systematically silencing people of color. For instance, if people in Florida who had been in prison could vote, then George Bush wouldn't have been president because those people would not have voted for him. (laughs) So it's important stuff. Um, But this also means things like breaking the cycle of uh, imprisonment. This means education and social programs for people who are in prison. This means programs to help people who are former prisoners, because right now we do things like give people $50 a bus ticket and say, you better get a job, otherwise you will uh, have to go back to prison. Oh, Oh it also means getting rid of laws that discriminate against prisoners for getting jobs. It means uh, providing things like social assistance programs to to people who are in prison, instead of saying that if you've been in prison, you can't receive welfare because that is a terrible idea. How like you how... can't get a job and you can't get welfare, and if you don't get money, you're going back to prison. Oh my! Why did they let that... them out in the first Just place? What... How how <laughs> do people that... imagine that would work? <laughs> yeah, like okay, you have zero options you have to choose one of them. What? (laughs) So yeah, I see. It's going to take a bit less convincing than I thought to say that prison abolitionment is a great idea. Uh, And so one sort of last thing that they work on is just the normalcy that prison has. We are used to seeing cops everywhere. We're used to seeing cops on TV. The fact that the show Cops is on TV or Dog the Bounty Hunter or any of these other shows that just completely dehumanize criminals and convince us that cops are always great and that it's great to have cops presences everywhere it's also things with dealing with the militarization of the police going back to the drug war i'm going to quote ed koch who is the former mayor of new york talking about what they should do about drugs i propose the following steps as a coordinated federal response to the war on drugs use the full resources of the military for drug interdiction the Posse Committis Doctrine, which restricts uh, participation of the military in civilian law enforcement, must be modified so that the military can be used for narcotic control. That is terrifying. Wow. That is terrifying. And what? so luckily that didn't happen. Less luckily, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency yeah. in the U.S., has been funding to militarize the police. So we have sort of the same situation, but it's A-OK with the Constitution. Maybe? <laughs> So, I'm guessing your first sort of question with abolishing prisons is... What do we do with all of the criminals? Uh, my guess was, but how would we survive without prisons? So, oh, roughly okay. the same. Uh, what do yeah. we do with the murderers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yes. so I'm going to get to the murderers second, but... <laughs> 
They can wait. <laughs> they, they can wait. So uh, first I just want to say that prison is not history's only criminal justice system that we've ever had. Exile and banishment used to be common. Uh, disfigurement, eye for an eye, or branding, cutting off the hands of prisoners. Uh, torture used to be a big thing. We used to put people to death, and we used to make people slaves. And obviously a lot of those things are still done, and it's still obviously horrible, but these are things that used to be common that now are either things we don't do anymore, things we're getting rid of, or things we at least feel really bad about when we do them. Or when we think about the fact that we do them, at least. Uh, yes. And another thing to mention would be that there have been successful abolition campaigns before that have completely changed landscape, like anti-slavery movement, the anti-lynching movement, and the anti-segregation movement. And given the racial nature of crime, especially in the U.S., it is not necessarily surprising that the, the groups that are fighting against prisons would use the same sort of terminology. Uh, so I'm going to move on to your question, but what about violent crime? What about the murders? And I'll tell you, that's a tough question. And the thing is that there are, there are a few things you can do that will reduce violent crime. For instance, if you ended the drug war, which is horrible and discriminatory and is destroying Latin America, then it would greatly reduce a number of violent crimes that are occurring. But the problem is you can't reduce it completely. But the thing is, violent crimes make up a small portion of overall crimes, and violent criminals make up a small portion of criminals, so if our justice system is designed around how we deal with the most violent of criminals, then we're failing almost everyone else because they don't fit into that category. Mm. And I would mention that while the prison abolition movement doesn't seem to have a good answer to this question, our current system also isn't a good answer. Uh, going back to Jem's comments about crimes uh, decreasing and violent crimes decreasing, I will note that this is going to be according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics in the National Crime Victimization Survey Report on Violence Against Women. Despite an exceptional increase in the number of men in prisons, women are not any safer and the rates of sexual assault and domestic violence have not decreased. Uh, in fact, some of the tough-on-crime actions against uh, domestic violence have caused problems. For instance, uh, a lot of places have laws now where if domestic abuse is reported, someone has to be taken to jail, and the police have to arrest someone based yeah. on it. Not they, don't, they won't necessarily be convicted of a crime. And what's uh, the result of that has been that there are fewer victims that have killed in self-defense but there are just as many people who are being killed by the victimizer. And is that because they don't want to send their spouse to jail and so they don't report? Um, so... Until it gets really bad, or...? Yeah, and you also get, uh, you get things where sometimes the victim themselves, because they have defended themselves, maybe they will be taken to jail. You get issues like, let's say, the person who is the victim is also, if they are undocumented, then the result of it might be that they have to leave the country, or if they are, if they are in the country... Uh, because of the victimizer, then if the victimizer goes to jail, then they no longer have the right to be yeah. in the country. So there, there are other there are other pressures, and there are other pressures that the victimizer can use to their advantage to silence victims. And obviously, I don't know what the answer to this is. If I knew the answer, I would be trying to solve this because this is a yeah. horrible problem. Uh, so another thing I'll mention is that so this seems really radical, but our current policy is also really radical. So, uh, again, this is all in the U.S. In the late 1960s, there were about 200,000 prisoners in the U.S. Today, there are 2.3 million prisoners in the U.S. Wow. There are more than 10 times as many. And if we want to look specifically to California, 
Uh, and the prisons they've been building, one of the things we found is that when people build prisons, the, th the result is people build more prisons. So in 1852, San Quentin was built, and that was California's first prison. Then in 1880, Folsom was built, and then they didn't build any more prisons till 1933 when they built a women's prison in Tehachapi, or however you pronounce that. So between 1852 and 1955, California built nine state prisons. Between 1984 and 1989, after we got tough on crime, California built nine state prisons. They built as many state prisons in five years as they had built in a hundred years. So in the 1990s, then, they built 12 new state prisons. So as of 2003, which is when I'm getting these numbers from, California had 33 prisons, 38 uh, camps, 16 correctional facilities, uh, five prisoner mother facilities, and they had 157,979 prisoners, which you will note, that is almost as many prisoners as there were in all of the U.S. in the 1960s. 38 camps? I like work camps. Prison camps. These statistics that I was just saying come from Angela Davis's wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Are Prisons Obsolete? I would, by the way, recommend if you're interested in this, this is probably the best book to read. It's short. It's informative. It is absolutely tragic. The thing is that our prison system is also historically incredibly problematic. In fact, uh, vagrancy laws, which I was mentioning before, they really came into effect in the postbellum South, and vagrants were coded as black. It was really a way of dealing with black people. I know what you're saying, postbellum South, but didn't the 13th Amendment ban slavery? Not exactly. To quote the 13th Amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So, it is perfectly fine to make someone a slave if they've been convicted of a crime. It is literally written there, and basically what happened is, on very, very flimsy circumstances, large numbers of black people were arrested and then leased out to camps. Uh, the conditions were in some ways, maybe worse than conditions that people were under in slavery, and that is because the people who were who were leasing out the prisoners didn't even own the prisoners, so they weren't really concerned about their long-term livelihood. Um, and I'll mention that this was very, very wide scale. In Alabama, by 1888, all of Alabama's able-bodied male prisoners were leased out to two major mining companies. Wow. So you may be wondering... Where does the modern prison system come from? A terrible, terrible <laughs> series of letters by Jeremy Bentham called Panopticon. And his idea was a, uh, was solitary cells in circular tiers all facing a guard tower. The prisoners wouldn't be able to see into the guard tower, so they wouldn't know whether the guard was watching them, and thus would have to assume the guard was always watching them. The idea was uh, that if they were always being watched then it would be time for them to think about penitence. And so in the U.S., uh, shortly after he wrote these letters, uh, two prison systems emerged. The Pennsylvania system, which had prisoners in total isolation in all ways, and the Auburn model, based on a prison in Auburn, New York, in which there was isolation for most of the time, but the workers did common labor together, although in complete silence, because obviously they needed to be meditative. Uh, th this is incidentally the Jeremy Bentham, who is the father of utilitarianism, utilitarian ethics. 
So the idea was that uh, lots of people thought that isolation was like, it was monastic and it would be emancipatory. I should mention that when I say this, obviously I'm only talking about men because women commit crimes differently or don't commit crimes. Uh, so what they used to do in the past is, first of all, traditionally, while men tended to go to prison, women went to psychiatric institutions because only a crazy woman would commit crimes. And the other thing is that... Uh, when prisons were being built for women, they were often cabin-style prisons that reinforced domesticity. In fact, lots of uh, poor people who went to these camps afterward would become servants in people's houses, and that was sort of the goal, because the idea was that it was to reinforce uh, that women who committed crimes were fallen women, and they needed to learn how to be a lady again. So while I will, uh, while I will say that this sort of system is probably better than outright torture, which was common beforehand. Charles Dickens took a tour in 1842 of one of these prison facilities and had this to say, I believe that very few men are capable of estimating the immense amount of torture and agony that this dreadful punishment, prolonged for years, inflicts upon the sufferers. I am only more convinced that there is a depth of terrible endurance in it which none but the sufferers themselves can fathom, and which no man has the right to inflict upon his fellow creature. I hold the slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body, because its wounds are not upon the surface and it extorts few cries that human ears can hear, therefore I the more denounce it as the secret punishment which slumbering humanity is not roused up to stay. Well, the good news is, 150 years later, we still haven't really dealt with this and we still tend to put people in solitary confinement. In the US, uh, supermax prisons are prisons in which the individual is in a cell by themselves, a cell smaller than a one-person bedroom. Um, they are put in those for 23 hours a day. Uh, the US has 60 supermax prisons and many more supermax sections in other prisons. And finally, I'll say that as bad as our system has been, in many ways it's even gone backwards. Uh, so in 1971, there were the Attica prison riots, and they they were uh, the riots were caused by a number of uh, fairly reasonable complaints that the prisoners had, like they wanted good food, they wanted better guards, and one of the main things they wanted is proper education. Um, uh, for instance, Malcolm X, who who was not in Attica, has has said that the transformation that happened to him was because he had access to reading, he learned how to read, and it made him a better person. But unfortunately, uh, the whole tough on crime policy has sort of reversed things. Uh, as of 1994, there are no Pell Grants for prisoners, Pell Grants in the U.S. being uh, grants for low-income people to go to university. So we are now in a situation where we're not even... We're not even providing education for prisoners, and that's stripping any way out for the people who are there. If we accept the claim that this is about reforming offenders and reintroducing them as pro productive members of society, productive members of society is really a distinctly capitalist way of... <laughs> oh, this would be a good time to mention that pretty much... The majority of people who are interested in prison abolition are quite radical. A lot of them are anti-capitalists. Angela Davis, who is one of the biggest names in it, uh, was twice the vice presidential candidate for Communist Party USA. Um, a lot of the good books I've been reading on this have been published by anarchist presses. It is largely an anti-capitalist movement. No uh, kidding. Even if we accept that the stated goal is accurate, that we want to rehabilitate these people and reintroduce them into society as productive, you know, whatever. We're not doing anything to actually accomplish this. Even if the goal is not punitive, 
that's really all we could be said to be accomplishing. Yeah, um... Just I, hurting yeah. those people. I don't have any numbers on me, but a num I know I've seen studies before that suggest actually someone going to prison makes it more likely they will commit a crime later, and often it's because they have no other options, and they in fact have reduced options versus what they had before they went to prison the first time. Uh, you also get things like it would obviously be cheaper and more effective to treat addiction, drug addiction, as a medical condition that needs to be solved instead of locking people in prison, but... Tough on crime. That doesn't make politicians feel good. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't make voters for said politicians feel good either because we want to punish the bad people because that allows us to, you know, distance ourselves from them. And It say, is a well, very othering situation, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's a very, it's very much a character judgment like we were talking about earlier. You know, oh, you're only bad people use drugs and so you deserve it, for example. It's like, oh, no, there couldn't possibly be any other circumstances why you might want to do that. Or only bad people break into somebody's house or, you know, like... The whole thing is very much, like... I'm very much not interested in judging people in that sense, and the reasons well, for that we covered on our determinism show. Yeah, and it's not helpful, you know, and, and we know yeah. that it's not helpful either. And the the problem is sort of things compound because racial issues, class issues, gender issue, uh, gender issues, so someone who is low income is going to have fewer other options if someone is also not white they're going to be facing more widespread racism if they're let's say transgender they might they are more likely to be kicked out of their home they may, uh, they are not going to necessarily have access to social programs for instance they might not be allowed into homeless shelters because there's discrimination there and so what will happen is they might be driven to something like sex work which happens a lot for trans people of color and then when bad things happen to them people go well they weren't really people now were they they were just a sex worker so what's the solution here, Brandon? Abolish prisons. Oh, were you ever going to get to the part about uh, the murderers? No, I, I think he said there's not really a, okay. a, a good solution, but it is, we don't have a good solution. Yeah, this is a bad solution, and all the other solutions are also bad, but this yeah. one's really bad. And abolishing the prisons addresses all of the other terrible things about yeah. the prison system. Yeah. So and it's the Nirvana fallacy. Yeah, you know. and, and removing... Non, uh, if we are treating nonviolent criminals separately and moving them into places that are better for them so that they are less likely to go into a spiral of future crimes, uh, we have more time to focus on violent uh, prisoners, uh, violent criminals, and work out what we need to do with them. Yeah, and it's not an all-or-nothing thing, too. I mean, we can work, even if you're not sold on the idea of total prison abolition, you can still work hand-in-hand ha hand with these people on massive reforms, and, and we can at least agree to get all of these other people out of these horrendous con conditions that they have to deal with. Yeah. So on that uplifting note, we're almost done here tonight. Uh, there are, of course, all sorts of other things that we could talk about. We only briefly mentioned uh, the impact that solid social safety nets and back-to-work programs can have on crime rates and recidivism. Uh, we didn't talk about it. Uh, we didn't talk at all about the fact that in the United States, it is actually significantly less expensive to hold a convict in prison for life than it is to execute them, and yet the rhetoric surrounding capital punishment is typically about you know. It's cheaper for some reason, even though it's not. And that would be a horrible reason to kill somebody anyway. That is the main concern for human dignity. Right. 
Well, we didn't talk about the uh, 2010 study that showed that irrespective of other factors, judges were much more likely to grant parole to inmates after they'd had lunch or at least a short break. <laughs> talk about that on a different show we did though? yeah yeah, yeah, yeah we, we did that. yeah did we, we mentioned okay. it elsewhere so uh, anyway i'll put some links for further reading in the show notes uh i'll also link to a transcript of a heartbreakingly candid conversation between a federal judge and a defense attorney about a young man who is about to be sentenced uh that pretty much sums up a lot of the arguments we have as a society about criminal justice really well uh, we were also, my segment was supposed to be about forensic science and whether it is in fact a science, uh, but it sort of became a big monster topic, uh, so we're going to make that next month's show, so look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're running low on time, so I would like to cap off this episode with something that is truly weird. So over the last 10 years, two retired NYPD detectives, Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte, have been investigating the deaths of 45-odd college-aged men dating back to the late 90s. Uh, their bodies were found in water, and according to Gannon and Duarte, these men were generally intelligent, athletic, and popular, and had last been seen leaving parties or bars where they are drinking. The obvious conclusion, and indeed the conclusion of local law enforcement and the FBI, is that the majority of these deaths were accidental drownings related to alcohol. Duarte and Gannon, however, contend that these deaths were murders, serial murders. Uh, and when they investigated the scenes uh, of these crimes, they discovered graffiti depicting a smiley face near locations where they believe the killer or killers dumped the bodies in at least a dozen of the cases. Thus, these cases have collectively become known as the smiley face murders. Have you guys heard about this? Yes. So, this seems creepy. However... Uh, there are, there are some problems with this interpretation of events. Uh, many critics of the smiley face murder theory point out that Gannon and Duarte's speculation seems to rely heavily on confirmation bias. And criminal profiler Pat Brown uh, points out that they're simply guessing when they say, this is where we think the bodies entered the water. She said, uh, quote, if you look at an area five miles square, I bet you could find a smiley face. Another interpretation of events is that, of course, Pat Brown is a member of the Blake Association, uh, although strangely, to the best of my knowledge, Bruno Heller was never brought in for questioning uh, on these murders. Mentalist reference. Anyway, in uh, 2008, the FBI issued the following statement, <laughs> quote, the FBI has reviewed the information about the victims provided by two retired police detectives who have dubbed these incidents the smiley face murders and interviewed an individual who provided information to the detectives. To date, we have not developed any evidence to support links between these tragic deaths or any evidence substantiating the theory that these deaths are the work of a serial killer or killers. But wouldn't that be creepy? When were these murders? When did they happen? The the investigation into the murders started very shortly before the Mentalist premiered, actually, which is why it caught my no, attention. No, okay, but the but murders the actual themselves. murders themselves were in the late nineties uh, to mid two thousands. There was an explosion of smiley face paraphernalia at that time. Yes, if you could look in any direction and not have one hit you in the face at that point in time, that was a good day. People really like the Watchmen, I guess. Does anyone know where those detectives no. were during the time of all of those murders? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say it on air. I accuse them. I don't remember their names, but I know their crimes. Gannon and Duarte. Guilty. You mean Ganondorf? 
So uh, we have a few other uh, just bits of business that we'd like to address before the end of the show. One is that I'd like to remind our listeners that we have our 100th episode special coming up in September. So if uh, you have things that you'd like us to talk about, any small skeptical topics that have flown under our radar over the years, things that you want our opinions on, or questions that you have... Uh, send them in to us. We'll have some voices on the show, I think, that you haven't heard from in a long time. Uh, Tell us what your favorite episodes are, the things that you think we're wrong about, the things that you thought we were wrong about that turned out you now think we're right about. Uh, You can send us an email uh, to l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com if you're so inclined. Ashlyn, do you want to tell us uh, about the new donation button we have on our website? I would. So it turns out that running a podcast costs money. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for the last uh, several years, how long have we been doing this? Uh, Three or four years now. (laughs) Uh, We have been relying on the Winnipeg Skeptics coffers to just sort of provide money for this. And and Ian and Jem have generously paid for our various uh, equipment rentals. But the Winnipeg Skeptics coffers are running pretty low right now. So we would really appreciate uh, some help from our wonderful listeners. We have put up a donation button on our site. Yeah, on the WordPress page. You can find it at lueepodcast.wordpress.com. We would really appreciate it. It costs us... uh, what like twenty bucks a month to rent all of our equipment? A little bit, a little bit less. Okay, we yeah, were we're beefing up our mics. So. I'm sorry, my speaker's fee was so high. Yeah. I'm feeling really <laughs> guilty now. Um, and we have various web hosting costs and things like that. So just uh, seriously, a couple of bucks will make a big difference for us. On a personal note, uh, I'd like to remind everybody that I'm in a show at Winnipeg Fringe this year. If you're in Winnipeg for the Fringe Festival, consider coming out to see Of Blood and Ashes, which is written by Ian James and Adam Johnstone. Ian, of course, is a familiar voice uh, on the podcast here. Uh, We're at venue number three, which is the Playhouse Studio at 180 Market Avenue, and the showtimes will also be in the show notes. And uh, Ashlyn, you have also been selling things lately. I have been selling things lately. Um, I have an Etsy shop now. We are all set up at noblewhimsical.etsy.com. And I make pretty glass things and platters and all kinds of decorative doodads. And I would like to be able to help my household pay for things. That would be awesome. And finally, uh, that song that you heard at the top of the show, but that our panelists didn't hear because I didn't actually play it, was Love, Love, Love by the Mountain Goats off their 2005 album, The Sunset Tree. You can find it on iTunes, Amazon, in the show notes, uh, or wherever fine records are sold. We have Mountain Goats singing on our podcast now? The Mountain Goats. Uh, Well, specifically one Mountain Goat by the name of John Darnielle. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman.
blood's thicker than water. So the point is we don't have Red confirmation did. that it is barbecue sauce on your pop filter. <laughs> but it is probably barbecue sauce. So the question sauce. is, do you believe that it is barbecue sauce? Well, my guess is that someone was probably eating wings. That's always a safe guess. <laughs> They're delicious. <laughs> Everyone likes well, to hear the noise this of people wasn't eating. last used oh, for a podcast. Jesus. Yeah, it was probably used by a musician. Exactly. The so they were probably eating wings. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's what musicians are primarily um, doing. They are a We're wings... talking about profiling. They are a Wings cover band, and they are taking Why it Why would you cover Wings? Maybe I am amazed at this. Um, okay, because plain wings aren't great, so usually you want some sort of seasoning or sauce. <laughs> like Linda McCartney? I'm going to just grab some more water before we... Uh, the tap is weird. Hopefully you can figure it out. I'll just turn directions and help. Touch on, touch off. The bathroom's really Just close. slap it. But the bathroom... Bathroom water is better. Oh my god. <laughs> it's not a matter of the water. It's the fact that the, the filter on the bottom of the sink gets touched by dirty hands because nobody pays close attention and you get splashback from hands that have just been used. You don't think that you get splashback from dirty dishes? Yeah. Yeah, you do, but poop. Poop, Laura. <laughs> poop is everywhere. Yeah. I yeah, know. You have a toddler, Jem. What is your problem? But less poop. Remember the uh, fewer the poop, Jem? There was a MythBusters episode where they were testing yeah, the what the best location was for your toothbrush, and then the control ones. There was still poop on them, yep. <laughs> even yep. the ones that hadn't been unwrapped. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but everyone covered the fact that, like, a civilized adult, you put both lids down because there are two lids, and why would you want a big hole to where you poop open all of the time? Because even if it didn't have poop, why would you want something to fall into poop water? It's gonna be gross to get it out. Yes, you put both seats down. And specifically, we're gonna talk about a little thing we like to call getting rid of prisons, I guess? Prison abolition? Right, that's the word. And by the word, I mean the words. A term. <laughs> so the first thing that we're going to cover today... <laughs> this is starting out well. Jem, Jem, you're totally that news anchor from Parks and Rec right now. <laughs> Bird Adley? Words is something we call a term. <laughs> that is the sound of me trying to hold it together. In his book, Betel... In his book, Better Angels... I can't read. In his book... Betteridge? In his book... <laughs> in his book, Better... Better Angels... Oh my god. I think Brendan's presence is screwing up the mojo of this podcast. And was oh so happy when Canada a few years ago harshly increased their mandatory minimums for several nonviolent drug crimes. But what about stealing a loaf of bread? Uh, well, things sort of turned out well for Jean Valjean. Valjean, <laughs> at last we see each other plain. Monsieur le maire, you wear a different chain. Gem, any longer and we have to pay for that? <laughs> Although this isn't my podcast, so I don't know why I'm concerned. <laughs> So, is your play a musical? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it is not. Too bad. <laughs> Trying to detect and see through lies has been a part of human communication ever since we invented lying. Now, the inventor of the lie was John A. McLyerton Lie Pants. 
No, I saw a movie about this. Wasn't it uh, that guy from The Office? Uh, I assume you guys saw Jim Carrey's... Uh, liar, yeah. liar. Well, I, I was actually referring to his explosion on uh, on Twitter because of the oh. vaccine thing. Oh, that was priceless. Yeah. Well, Jerry Brown is obviously a fascist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The Dead Kennedys covered that decades ago. Thank you for bringing that <laughs> up. Somebody else has listened to Yellow Biafra. <laughs> Through using the Tycho's... Sphygmometer, which I can't pronounce, but what was that, hun? Sphygmometer. Sphygmometer. <laughs> do 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, uh, what did I say? Hard on my sleeve. I'll just. <laughs> That's what emotions look like, really right? This really doesn't work. Yeah, this this is really great for an audio only <laughs> podcast, guys. Just imagine me, who you've never seen before, making weird facial motions. See, I could have done all of that in way fewer than two years. You're in the desert, and you come across a turtle, and it's been flipped upside down. How do you feel? Sad? You're human. Oh, okay, that's the test? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That is what I remember of a book I read, like, half a decade ago. I have the audiobook of it with me right here. So if everyone can hold on a moment. (laughs) The Blade Runner was a great movie. You watched was, it with me, didn't no, you? No, I don't think I've seen it. I'm pretty sure oh. Harrison Ford. We need no, to watch Blade Ridley Runner. Scott. No, we watched yeah, uh, like, get off that my Schwarzenegger plane. thing. Sixth Day? What no, really get, old. Like, oh, where he's on Mars? Or is he? And it's also a Philip K. Dick movie? Total Recall. I have seen Total Recall. No, it's another one. He's in some kind of death race or something. Are you thinking uh, the movie Death Race 2000? <laughs> no. Because he is not in that. <laughs> You're no, of Running Man. Running yes, Man. thank you. Yeah. Which was based off of Stephen, that's Stephen King book. King, well, yeah. that's a, what's Stephen Richard King? Richard Bachman. Okay, all thank you, you well-read yeah. people, that's Still enough. Stephen King book. Well-read, well I like well-read means Stephen King and Philip K. Dick, <laughs> but not even Philip K. Dick books. Adaptations with different names based on short stories by Philip K. Dick. You know what that sentence accomplished, Brendan? Made me feel worse. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. You're a bad person. <laughs> investigations of the TSA program based on his work concluded that it's about as accurate as flipping a coin. Yep. So he is less reliable than the Ghostbusters Ekman? You mean Venkman? Venkman? Oh! <laughs> Should have looked it up first. <laughs> Please cut that. <laughs> Please. I want everyone to know, even though what was said previously was cut, I totally know everything that happens in Ghostbusters, because that's something to be proud of. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of anything other than ghost fellatio. <laughs> Busted makes me feel good. I've only heard of this through podcasts. I have not seen that you, one. You haven't seen, seen Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters? Uh, so are no, you I feeling have. better now? So many years ago, so okay. I don't remember it at <laughs> all. It was not... So good. I was so good. sheltered as a child when all these things came out, you guys. Right. Your family didn't want you around marshmallows? To give an example, I wasn't allowed to watch the show Gargoyles because there was too much violence in it. And That's too true. many Star Trek <laughs> crossover characters. But this is the type... That was why so, I watched it. So if I'm not allowed to watch Gargoyles, I'm definitely not allowed to watch these other types of things. Although I was allowed to watch the second Ninja Turtles movie. Because they hated you? I don't know. <laughs> Hey, we are halfway through the Jim, things I wanted to talk about, Stop talking. and we're less than an hour in. Uh-huh. This so is great. So, Jim, a quick aside, teleportation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, oh, boy. You're such a bad person.
Wars and stuff. That well, it's really just because I'm going to spend all of my time talking about prison in science fiction movies. Okay. Well, the answer is you die. There's a new you, but it doesn't really matter. Who cares? We're talking about Judge Dredd. Thank you. I could not remember its name, and it was driving me. <laughs> just an aside, the Judge Dredd punishment is the worst punishment. Like, it sucks. The person doesn't get older. They're just as criminal. That's not Judge Dredd. You're no, talking no, no, no. about... Demolition Man. Demolition Man. Oh, uh, same guy. Yeah, they, they cryogenically freeze them in the future of 1996. <laughs> but I think they do, like, some re-education or something with, with the computers. Oh, yeah, there's the seashells. Yeah, that was that was a movie. You guys that I are saw. not selling this movie very well. <laughs> it's not a good movie. No, but it's great. I You're did. selling it accurately. <laughs> Yeah. So so a much better solution uh, to profiling is randomized screaming. Is randomized screaming. Oh my god, please leave that in. <laughs> Why can't I talk today? <laughs> So a much better solution to profiling is randomized screening. Ah! <laughs> I said screening. I didn't get to do it the first time. <laughs> Please leave that in. I'm sorry, I'll be Okay, so um, we have one more... I guess, a uh, major topic that we want to talk about. Uh, Brendan, you want to tell us about the uh, prison abolition movement? Yes, I'm going to be talking all about prison abolition, but in a moment, because I am thirsty. When I say there are arguments, I mean you really, really should read The New Jim Crow by the author of The New Jim Crow, who's name. <laughs> an Australian joke. Australians, thank you for not making an Australian joke. <laughs> okay, well that was a bunch of nonsense that will get cut out. <laughs>